Okay, our uh, message tonight is going to be by Dr. J.B. Hickson. Uh, J.B. and I have uh, had a friendship for many years, and I, I love and appreciate J.B. greatly. We're glad that he could be here this year to teach us 2 Peter chapter 2, and a passage dealing with the subject of false teachers. And, you know, not that J.B. knows a lot about false teachers because of experience, but... Uh, I can testify, having known JB for many years, that he is a man of truth, who wants God's truth, and he's been through some battles in that regard, and I really respect and appreciate him for that. So he's an excellent choice to teach on this passage here tonight. So JB, come on up and teach. By the way, JB is the pastor of Plum Creek Chapel in Colorado Springs, is that right? Uh, area? In Denver. Yeah. Okay. Denver. Okay. Wow. I feel like I'm at the helm of the Starship Enterprise. I love it. <laughs> this is great technology, so I need to go to my slide, right? Am I cool? Awesome. And uh, I want to thank Dale for really helping me with this. This is just outstanding technology. In fact, it pretty much, you know, it's like it makes its own gravy. It preaches for you. I'm actually a hologram. And, uh, and no, this is great. Thank you, Dale. Dale, you're one of the smartest Vikings fans I know. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, I realize that's kind of a contradiction in terms, but smart. But yeah, I know, I know. He threatened to, threatened to mute me. Well, you'll have to come back Friday night uh, for my Vikings jokes. I will, I will spare you other than that one. Um, it's very intimidating to speak to a group of pastors. I've spoken at uh, lots of pastors' conferences, but Pastors' conferences and the Duluth Pastors' Conference are a whole different uh, thing, and it's definitely uh, intimidating because there's so many uh, scholars and, 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 and men that really know the Word, and I'm really honored to get to, to be here. It's been a while since we've been in Duluth, a lot of things going on through the years and just haven't been able to come, but really honored and appreciate being here. But I'm especially intimidated uh, tonight because as uh, Randy was reading our scripture passage, it uh, suddenly occurred to me, and I was quite mortified that it's Second Peter 2. I was in First <laughs> Peter 2. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, that would be something. Uh, actually, I did have a little bit of a, a blessing uh, as I was preparing. I, I had been too hasty in reading all the different who was assigned what passage and thought I had been assigned the entire chapter 2, and I was talking to Pastor Roxer a few weeks ago in preparation, and he mentioned something about him having the last part of chapter 2, and I went and looked. Sure enough, I only go through 17. So I told Dennis on the phone right then, I said, you just made me 30% more completed in my prep time than I was before we started this conversation because I don't have as much to do. So, uh, but, uh, and then I kind of got looking closer at the assigned passages because I wanted to see who got assigned what and so forth, and then I realized... I got assigned the longest section of any speaker, which doesn't seem fair. In fact, it's like twice as long as most. And then I got to look in even further, and I thought, if I was the conference director, if I was in charge of this whole thing, if I was the pastor of Duluth Bible Church, what passage would I assign myself? And sure enough, Pastor Roxer gets five verses. Five, <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that, uh, somehow that just doesn't seem fair. But... Uh, but anyway, I want to thank you for letting me be here. Thank Plum Creek Chapel for letting me uh, travel and come to uh, conferences like this. But let's dive into Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, in this chapter, of course, Peter is warning 
against uh, false teachers who are like the false prophets of old. And uh, he says these are people that are contradicting the message that the apostles uh, had preached. As we've already seen in chapter 1, Peter's talking about personal uh, godliness and uh, your personal walk with the Lord. And you know, he talks about uh, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge and so forth, um, as Sean talked about this morning. But then he gets to chapter 2 and he addresses influences that might cause someone to not be able to grow in their maturities, things that might hold them back, that might have a negative impact uh, on their lives, and namely, that's false teaching. And so he begins by describing characteristics of the false teachers, and then we're going to look at consequences of their teaching, and then the conduct of these false uh, teachers. And then uh, Pastor Roxer will take the last part of chapter 2 and talk about the condemnation of, of them. But uh, it was interesting, uh, last night I was laying in bed, uh, the church has, has me staying here in the uh, apartment upstairs, and just kind of thinking, and, and suddenly it popped into my mind that Sunday at church, before we left to drive, start our drive here on Monday morning, and, and this happens, you, you guys know as pastors this happens a lot, someone had given me a letter that had come to the church in the mailbox, regular mail, and said, hey, this, this came for you, and I had stuck it in my backpack, and then completely forgotten about it and all the craziness of getting ready to leave. And just last night, I'm laying in bed, and, oh, I never looked at that letter. So I got out of bed, went to my backpack, and pulled out the letter. And it was a letter. I knew who it was from because I could tell from the address. It's a letter from a young man who I've never met in person, but I discipled him over the phone over a course of about a year. And he, he had told me the first time we ever talked that he had gotten saved while in prison and that somebody, the chaplain or somebody, had given him a copy of Getting the Gospel Wrong. And so when he got out, he looked me up and called me. And so I really enjoyed talking to him. We had multiple lengthy conversations over a period of almost a year. And then uh, somehow he ended up, he's back in prison, and so now he can only write me through snail mail. And this was one of several letters I've gotten from him. And much to my amazement, the letter begins, Dear J.B., I've been studying 2 Peter chapter 2. And he says, um, this is a very interesting passage and I'm confused as to who these false teachers would refer to in this day and age. He says, uh, who would actually fit into this horrible standard? He says, it seems like false teachers that would be like that would be easy to point out. He says, you would uh, think that if there were people in the church who had, quote, eyes full of adultery and hearts, quote, trained in greed, 2 Peter 2.14, that they would be easy to point out. But I guess those things can be done in secret, I suppose. It even says that they, quote, entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping, end quote. That would be pretty easy to spot, wouldn't you think? I would like to hear your opinion on this matter. So I plan to send him a link to the video. No, um, I do plan to write him back, and I always enjoy talking with him, but I thought, wow, what, uh, that, how providential that I've been studying Second Peter for the last month or two, getting ready for tonight, and the night before I'm going to be talking about this uh, great chapter, he... Ask it. But I'm going to come back to his question because he asks a very good question.
question, given the description that we're about to see in 2 Peter chapter 2, you sure, you sure would think it would be easy to spot these teachers, wouldn't you? But what, he, what he's missing and what I plan to tell him, as we're going to see tonight, is there's one component of them that kind of trumps all the others, and that's their secrecy, their stealthiness, the fact that they are as bad as they are, they are precisely not easy to notice, which is why it's so important for us uh, uh, today to really get our hands around uh, some of their characteristics. Uh, Now, as you know from listening to the passage read and from reading it, I'm sure, many times in your own life and ministry, it's a pretty scathing rebuke of these uh, false teachers. In fact, uh, D. Edmund Hebert puts it this way, only Christ's withering woes on hypocritical leaders in Matthew 23, as well as the parallel passage in Jude, convey the same severe denunciation of false teachers that are contained in this chapter. So the whole chapter uh, really is striking for its emotional concern and its emotional in, you know, appeal. Peter is passionate about the dangers that these false teachers oppose, much the same way uh, Paul was in his first epistle to the Galatians. This was a serious matter uh, to Peter. Uh, Peter, of course, was instrumental in founding the Christian church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and already only 31 years later, he was seeing truth slipping away at the hands of self-absorbed teachers with impure motives, and it bothered him. Uh, So some of his sentences are very long and involved. It was like his pen couldn't keep up with his mind as he was writing, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit, as Dr. Stallard uh, talked about. But I want to talk about, first of all, the characteristics of false teachers. In the first three verses, we read, There were also false prophets among the people. Now he's hearkening back to the false prophets in Old Testament times that sought to lead God's people away Uh, from the revelations of God's true prophets, the Word of God in that time. The word false prophet is pseudoprophetai, obviously referring to those whose prophecies were not accurate, turned out to be false, untrue. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet, uh, some 500 years or so before the time of Christ, wrote, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so. So this is nothing new as Paul would call it, people having itching ears. But notice the prophet says, what will you do in the end? So in the context, the Lord is is appalled uh, that a horrible thing was happening in Judah. The prophets were not delivering the Lord's message, but rather just saying what the people wanted to hear. And the priests were conducting worship as they thought best, rather than as uh, God's word had specified. And instead of revolting against these false prophets, the people loved them and embraced them. And so uh, the Lord, through the prophet here, asked, well, what will you do in the end? They're not going to be able to avoid his judgment. And that's essentially what we see in this chapter. So after kind of invoking the thought of these false prophets in days gone by, he says there will be false teachers similarly among you. The same thing, Peter says, is happening in the churchy age. False teachers in Peter's time were trying to lead God's people away from the teaching of the apostles. And uh, these men, they were typically males, uh, although in our day and age, 2,000 years later, there's no shortage of female uh, false teachers. Um, And if you're interested, I keep a list. Just come see me. 
but uh, these, these false teaching men would arise from within the church. Uh, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders about the same thing seven years earlier when he gathered them at Miletus, and he said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So similar to the word false prophets, the word false teachers is the word pseudodidaskalos. And, you know, it was interesting when I did a word study on this, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, and I went to BDAG, and, and here's how BDAG uh, describes this, uh, this hapax legomena the only time. I'm not kidding, this is literally the way it described it, and I, I kind of had the same chuckle too. I thought BDAG, when, back when I was, you know, studying it all the time in seminary, uh, it seemed much more scholarly in their definitions, uh, but this is the BDAG definition. In fact, I was even further shocked because it had been a while since I've actually opened BDAG, and, and some of you pastors may be aware of this. I wasn't, but they've actually started illustrating BDAG, and, and you can imagine my surprise when I saw the picture that went uh, with this. So these were absolute quacks uh, according to the scholarly definition uh, in BDAG, false teachers, pseudodidaskalos, and they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly bring in, literally means to bring in alongside, and these heretics would basically come in and they would simply add some other teaching to the uh, truth that the apostles had taught, and, and then in so doing corrupt it. And so they, they're coming in alongside, if you will. Uh, and the implication here is that they did it in an underhanded way. And it's precisely for this reason that my friend that I have been corresponding with, uh, you know, asked the question, you know, you'd think we'd be able to know them, and the answer to that is, is right here in verse 1. It's because they're doing this stealthily. Uh, they come in and change the doctrinal foundation of the church. Um, I was talking to someone at dinner who was relating an experience about a pastor who had come in uh, to the church, and uh, the person I was talking to had been on the search committee, and the pastor uh, didn't really, wasn't forthcoming and upfront about their Calvinist uh, passions and doctrinal framework, and, but they had every intention of coming in and changing the church to a Calvinist uh, church. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about here, this, this, un, this stealthy, um, you know, heretics coming in and, and secretly bringing in truth that sounds good at first pass but really has ulterior motives. Heresies is obviously truth that's inconsistent with the revealed Word of God, the Word of the Apostles at this point. But notice that these heresies are destructive, destructive. Derek Kidner reminds us that there's always a straight line from apostasy to disaster just as there is from sin to death. As I mentioned, Paul addressed a similar problem in Galatians when uh, the first letter I believe that he wrote chronologically uh, right after uh, his first missionary journey and he had no sooner seen a great harvest of souls through preaching the gospel in Iconium and Lystra and Derby that uh, these false teachers had crept in, Judaizers, and began to tell these new converts that if they really want to be saved they have to keep the law or be circumcised and again adding things um, to it. Paul says they're perverting as the way the New King James describes it, uh, the gospel. It's, it's metastrepho. Uh, and by the way, that phrase is only used 
two, uh, that verb is only used two other times in various forms in the New Testament. And both times it refers to taking something and turning it 180 degrees. It's used by Peter as in a quotation of Joel in, in Acts 2 in his famous sermon. And he talks about the uh, sun being, uh, the moon being turned to darkness, or the sun being turned to darkness, I think it is. And then it's used by James, the Lord's brother, in his epistle when he talks about uh, mourn, laughter turning to mourning. In both cases, you've got 180-degree polar opposites, and that's what Paul says in Galatians, these false teachers were doing by adding the slightest amount of work. So when it comes to false gospels, uh, it's, it's not a matter of degree. It's a zero-sum game, you know. Uh, and there's no, there's no middle ground. It can't be just a little bit off, right? Uh, you know, like the young lady that tells her, uh, Dad, Dad, I, I'm, I'm pregnant. And the dad says, you're what? And she goes, but just a little bit. You know, it's like, well, you either are or you aren't. There's no matter of, of degree. But if we go back to the text, it goes on to say, um, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Now, I want to take a moment and kind of take a little excursus to focus on this key verse that proves unlimited atonement. Because here we have an example of people who the Lord bought, uh, uh, agarazzo is the verb there, uh, who end up in hell. And we know this because the text goes on to tell us they ended up in the blackness of darkness forever. And no amount of uh, hermeneutical gymnastics can turn that into some type of you know, outer darkness or Gehenna. Or, I mean, blackness of darkness forever leaves little wiggle room that we're talking about uh, hell uh, there. So when Jesus Christ died, he paid the penalty for everyone's sins and redeemed, purchased, agarazzo, every human being in this sense, even unbelievers. And uh, this verse supports that doctrine. So again, if you take a look at this word agarazzo, it's pretty straightforward, nothing fancy about it. Used 31 times in the New Testament, it just means to buy or to purchase. And so it's hard to see how Calvinists can get around this one verse uh, when trying to suggest that Christ only died uh, for the elect. And I've had conversations with them over the last 30 years in, in different various uh, contexts. I've been to a lot of different uh, Reformed conferences where I've had uh, invigorating discussions with uh, people from the opposing camp on this issue. And uh, it, what they do, they do it kind of similar to the way they handle Hebrews 6.4, which talks about uh, believers, in my understanding of the passage, who had tasted the heavenly gift. And so, of course, if you read Calvinist commentaries, they say, well, they tasted, but they didn't swallow, is kind of the idea. Uh, well, here, when it comes to 2 Peter 2.1, they say, you know, these people were purchased, but, you know, they didn't get a receipt or something. They, they missed, missed some part of it. But the arguments are very strained to make this passage fit a limited atonement uh, view. The, the word agarazzo is not ambiguous. It's the same word that's used... Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price. Or we can go to Revelation 5 when it says, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God. Same word, agarazzo, purchased us. There are many passages that I think uh, are a problem for those who suggest Christ died only for the elect. 1 John 2.2, 2, uh, chief among them, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or another proof text would be 1 Timothy 2, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all 
to be testified in due time. Or Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus, uh, who by the grace of God might taste death for who? Everyone. So as we talk about uh, this uh, notion of uh, limited atonement, I want to kind of, again, take a, a, some time to see what they say in their own uh, words. According to the Calvinist view of limited atonement, obviously the third point and the five points of Calvin, of Calvinism, Christ died only for the elect, not for all mankind. He didn't die for those that he planned and ordained from eternity past to go to hell. Now remember, Calvinists insist that uh, those who were not elected by God cannot believe and be saved. It's impossible for them uh, to believe. In fact, really nobody can believe, even the elect. God forces them to believe because regeneration must precede faith in their view. And so faith is not uh, the instrumental cause of our justification. It is the involuntary response to God's regeneration. So man is completely uh, passive. But what we're going to see is that this is in direct opposition to several passages, some of which we've already looked at. But I want to define this in their own terms and kind of walk you through their, uh, their reasoning. Uh, the, the, the reason they come to this conclusion, and of course remember, Calvinism is a closed-loop system. There's no such thing as a four-pointer or a three-pointer to a true Calvinist. You know, it's an all-or-nothing uh, situation. But according to Calvinists, the atonement is what actually saves people. And we see this again and again in their writings. So the atonement doesn't just make it possible to, for someone to be saved by receiving the free gift of justification by faith. Uh, the atonement is actually what saves them. For example, uh, we see Lorraine Bettner, the nature of the atonement settles its extent. In other words, your view on the extent of the atonement, limited or unlimited, is determined by your view on the purpose of the atonement. And if you think the atonement is what actually saves people eternally, then of course you have to believe in limited atonement. James Montgomery Boyce, L stands for limited atonement, the doctrine that Christ's death was a real atonement for the specific sins of his people as a result of which they are truly saved. Steele and Thomas in their work, The Five Points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented, say Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. Burkhoff puts it this way, the Bible clearly teaches that the effect of the work of Christ is not merely to make atonement possible, but to reconcile men to God and to put them in actual possession of eternal salvation. Or Charles Hodge, the righteousness of Christ did not make the salvation of men merely possible, it secured the actual salvation of those for whom it wrought. So you see how the, the purpose of the atonement plays a huge role in this. <clears throat> R.C. Sproul said, Limited atonement declares that the mission and death of Christ was restricted to a limited number, to his people, his sheep. Or Wayne Grudem, God did not condemn to eternal punishment anyone, could not condemn to eternal punishment anyone whose sins are already paid for. That would be demanding double payment. That's a common argument that they make. And it would therefore be unjust. And uh, MacArthur, for whom did Christ die? He died for all who would believe because they were chosen, called, justified, and granted repentance and faith by the Father. The atonement is limited to those who believe who are the elect um, of God. And then, of course, J.I. Packer, limited atonement states that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith. Again, you don't believe, according to their view, you are forced to believe. 
to faith through regeneration. Christ did not die in the efficacious sense for everyone. Well, what does the Bible say? You know, one of my favorite quotes by the late Bob Leitner, one of my uh, mentors, was, let us be biblicists above everything else and at all costs, and when and where our position conflicts with man-made systems of theology, let it be. So you've seen what the Calvinists say in their own words. I'm not putting words in their mouth, but what does the Bible say? Well, Jesus says, I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. He makes it clear that faith is what removes the penalty of sin. Faith is what removes the penalty of sin. Uh, and again, 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation, not for ours only, but for the whole world. Christ's death paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. Now, this verse is another one that it just seems, how in the world can they get around it? And not surprisingly, Calvinists are all over the map in terms of how they interpret 1 John 2, 2. For example, Sproul says, John's teaching that Christ died for the sins of the whole world means that the elect are not limited to Israel, but are found throughout the whole world. So he makes it a geographic distinction, which I think strains the context entirely. Boyce says the contrast is not between Christians and, and, as, and the as yet unsaved world, but between those Jews for whom Christ died and those Gentiles for whom Christ died. So Boyce makes it about a Jew-Gentile uh, distinction. What about MacArthur? The whole world is a generic term referring not to every single individual, but to mankind in general. I'm not even sure what he means by that. But it sounds good, all right? Packer says, when the world is said to be loved and redeemed, the reference is to the great number of God's elect scattered worldwide. So it's the classic world of the elect. It's not referring to each and every person who did, does, or shall exist. Well, we, we disagree with that. Again, uh, he is tasting death for everyone. It's all men, a ransom for all. You really have to insert a lot of baggage between the lines to, uh, you know, in these passages to get it to say what they uh, uh, think it says. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. Or Jesus in John 4, uh, the, he's the Savior of the world. And again, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world. Hard to see how that's elect there to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So according to Scripture, Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient only uh, for those who believe. He died for the sins uh, of the whole world. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten uh, Son. Or Romans 4, but to him who does not work, but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Or John 1, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in His name. Or Jesus Himself said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in Him. So we believe, as I said, that Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. So Calvinism teaches that that uh, Calvinism teaches that faith is not the instrumental cause of regeneration, as I said. It's rather the involuntary, inevitable response to regeneration. So if you're chosen, at some point you are regenerated, and then you may be walking along and you pass from death to life through not even realizing it happened, and then all of a sudden you express faith, again, which they believe God forces you to do, 
and again, they don't like the terminology force. They chafe at that. But if you press them on it, it, you know, if you're elect, you could not reject the gospel if you tried. And if you're not elect, you couldn't believe the gospel if you tried. That's forced. I mean, I don't know any way, other way to define it. So uh, limited atonement, we do not believe, is uh, the view. And, and 2 Peter 2.1 really hits that hard. I think a better term is limitless atonement. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. But his payment for sins is only appropriated individually upon those who place their personal faith in him and him alone uh, for it. Um, so we see a lot of passages that, that we could talk about uh, in addition to this, such as the great uh, analogy in Romans 5 between the first and second Adam. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to what? All men, resulting in justification. Of life. So I love to ask Calvinists, did, did uh, Christ or did Adam's and Eve's sin in the garden, did it only affect the non-elect? No. And if Paul's analogy here would make no sense if we didn't believe in uh, unlimited atonement. So imputation is a key part of the whole discussion. Obviously, we all know this, that uh, to charge to one's account Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. The sin of the race was imputed to Christ. Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then that righteousness that Christ purchased with his blood is imputed to everyone who believes. It's a pretty simple uh, transaction, simple to understand anyway. Uh, The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So this is the instrumentality of faith in securing eternal salvation, which is utterly lost on Calvinists, and it results in, frankly, some uh, pretty embarrassing attempts to explain passages of Scripture like uh, 2 Peter uh, 2.1. Going back to Bob Leitner, he says, there simply is no distinction in the Bible between the elect and the non-elect sinners in their unregenerate uh, state. So if we go back to the text, still here at the end of verse 1, notice that the destruction of these heretics will be swift in the sense that when their judgment descends, it's going to be sudden. Not, not saying that it's going to come about at any moment, but when it happens, it's going to be sudden. Uh, they were saying the Lord was slow in coming to exercise judgment. If we, when we get into chapter 3 tomorrow, we'll see that famous passage where uh, one of the signs of the time of the end time or the last days is that people are going to be mocking and saying, uh, you know, where's the sign of his coming? You know, everything's still the same. We haven't seen him. You know, we've been waiting two thousand years. Where is he? So even though they were mocking it, Peter reminds them here in chapter two that it's going to come. Their own judgment is absolutely certain. And then we notice many will follow their destructive ways, and this is why this is so critical for us as pastors uh, to to really be aware of. And, uh, you know, i got to be honest with you, I feel like compared to the people in this room, I'm like a terrible pastor. I'm not, I'm not a very good pastor. I love to teach and preach the Word of God, but, but studying this passage has really renewed in me the, the significance and importance of us as shepherds in protecting the flock. Because the, the, the language that Peter uses here and the warning that he sounds about how easy it is for people to be swept up uh, is pretty significant, and it should get our uh, attention. Um, 
This phrase, destructive ways, it kind of threw me for a loop at first because I study from the New King James, and um, the New King James here uh, follows the, uh, the TR, uh, and so there was kind of a uh, textual issue, and I talked to, uh, called Tom, because basically Tom is like the smartest exegete I know. Uh, if there is a room and Tom is in it, it doesn't matter where the room and it doesn't matter who's in it. He's going to be the smartest guy in the room, in my opinion. Um, and uh, so we kind of walked through it, and, and I realized I was kind of overlooking it. So really, there really is no textual issue here. It's just a TR issue that Erasmus put in there. So the idea here is aselgeia. It's, it's a sensualness. Uh, and, um, and so uh, this is a word that is used in the, in the Jude passage, the parallel passage in Jude 4, and it's translated lewdness. And he will follow their, you know, their lewd ways as the idea. So the tragic fact is many will follow them. False teachers are successful. You know, um, frankly, they're more successful sometimes than those of us who genuinely try to preach the truth. Uh, people listen to and follow their destructive ways. It reminds me of a Far Side cartoon I, I found one time. And uh, the, the, you see this guy that's third in line there, and he's turning to the guy behind him, and he says, uh, that's why I never walk in front, you know. <laughs> now, what you don't see in this cartoon that really, I think, makes the illustration even more effective is, you know, where's the false teacher that these guys were all following? Well, he's over here, not even in the cartoon, off to the, off to the left. <laughs> and these guys are following him, and they're being, dis- you know, they're, they're facing destruction. I mean, look at that quack. He doesn't even have the common courtesy to look back and check on his followers. He's just marching along with that smug look on his beak, you know? And that's what these false teachers are doing. The people are leading, they're leading them right off of a cliff. Uh, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed, the behavior of these false teachers brings great dishonor to the church and to the Lord's, and so the, the Lord's church, uh, because it undermines a truth. And then he says, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. These are all characteristics of these uh, false teachers. False teachers typically desire to satisfy themselves rather than God. Um, This leads them to take advantage of uh, their audiences. Uh, Ken Gangle, who was one of my professors at Dallas, uh, put it this way. He says, ministerial charlatans and quacks, obviously he was reading BDAG, uh, have often troubled the flock of God. Watch this. In their greed, they, they use others for their own mercenary purposes and turn the church into a dirty marketplace. That's pretty well said. Um, if you notice the word deceptive here in verse 3, by covetous, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Uh, most of you probably know this is the word plastos. Again, only use in the New Testament. There's a lot of hapax legomena in Peter's uh, writings, but it's where we get the English word plastic. And Peter is pointing out that the false teachers use fake words. Fake words. Wiersbe puts it this way, plastic words, words that can be twisted to mean anything you want them to mean. The false teachers use our vocabulary, but they do not use our dictionary. They talk about salvation, inspiration, and the great words of the Christian faith, but they do not mean what we mean. Immature and untaught believers hear these preachers or read their books and think that these men are sound in the faith, but they are not, end quote. Amen, uh, Warren Wearsby. Paul likewise warned 
against false teachers, as we've come to this passage many times uh, so far in this uh, conference. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Or in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. If we go back to the text, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. By the way, didn't you just love the way Randy read the text? I mean, he just reads the, the Word of God with such inflection, and it, it just, uh, I felt like I learned more just from listening to you read it than I did in two months of studying this passage, because some of these words just jumped out, and this was one of those phrases. Their judgment has not been idle, their destruction does not slumber. So judgment and destruction are personified. Peter's point is that God is never late or asleep in executing justice. We know from chapter 3 that He is patient, not willing that any should perish, but He's never going to fail to bring justice. And so that brings us then to the next section, the consequences of false teaching. And Peter describes this in order to help us see the importance of avoiding it. Uh, And he gives several illustrations in this section to demonstrate the Lord's judgment. Verses 4 through 9 are a single sentence, one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. And Peter was intent on demonstrating that God will judge false teachers and others who sin against Him and His Word. And he uses God's work in history to kind of verify his point. The first historical example of judgment that God brought on is on demons. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, casting them down to hell is literally one word, a verb, a tartarao, meaning casting them to Tartarus. It's the only reference to Tartarus in the Bible. And uh, while Tartarao might sound like a steak delicacy, it's nothing of the sort. Although I guess minced meat might be an appropriate metaphor for the ultimate judgment that uh, these angels are going to face. This is undoubtedly the same angelic rebellion to which Jude referred in uh, verse 6 of Jude. When he says... The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, I just recently, not too long ago, finished a lengthy series, 18 videos uh, entitled Spirit of the Antichrist, where I talked about the Luciferian conspiracy that is at play uh, really for the last 6,000 years since Satan was uh, kicked out of heaven. And in that context, I kind of gave a, a brief overview of angels, and I thought it might be good just to kind of chart that out here. Uh, Nothing new that we wouldn't know, but it's uh, helpful to kind of remember. Obviously, angels, contrary to popular myth, are not the souls of uh, deceased people. Angels are created beings that fall into one of two categories. Uh, They're either fallen or unfallen. And uh, the unfallen angels are kind of the good guys, what we commonly call angels, right? The fallen angels are the bad guys. These are what we commonly call, what the Scripture refers to as uh, demons, And so we could know from Scripture that one-third of the angels fell uh, with uh, Satan. So that leaves two-thirds. Angels are limited in number. Uh, There's not more of them or less of them, the same number today as there were before. Uh, But when you take a closer look at the 
uh, un, at the fallen angels, they kind of can be further broken down into those that are active today, if part of the spiritual cosmic battle that's going on in the unseen realm that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, and those that are, uh, imp- that are imprisoned. Um, you know, uh, in, in among those, some are temporarily imprisoned to be let out during the middle of the tribulation in the final waning moments. We're going to talk about that uh, in the next conference. I'm looking forward to kind of walking through Revelation 14 to 16. I'm titling that message, One Second Before the Second Coming. What will life be like in those waning moments when the bold judgments are poured out and the wrath of God is, is poured out? Uh, so some of them will be released according to Revelation 9, but some, the ones I believe are spoken of here in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6, are permanently imprisoned awaiting the lake of fire prepared for the devil uh, and uh, his angels. So again, going back to the text, the consequences of false teaching, these are reserved for judgment, as we just said. And uh, ju- the judgment that awaits, the idea here is the judgment that awaits the false teachers will not be minor. This is pretty significant example of evil that uh, Paul, I mean, that Peter is referencing here in these, uh, in these examples. Uh, and then he uses a second example from history, and that is the unrighteous in Noah's day. He goes, and he did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Uh, God didn't spare the sinners in Noah's day. And he's not going to spare these false teachers from judgment either. And then he uses a third example, and that is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, wow. I mean, God has, has, has had some powerful judgments uh, through the ages. And Peter, again, passionately is bringing up probably the worst of the worst that, that we could think of to, to remind us of how serious these false teachers' sin is and that he will, in fact, uh, bring judgment. They could expect the same fate. Um, and, um, uh, again, Dennis is going to be addressing this uh, in the second session uh, tonight. But the point is um, he made them an example. Uh, you could scarcely think of three more powerful examples, but these are examples of the fate of these coming uh, false teachers. And then in verse 7, he, he gives a little note of hope here. Again, it's almost like random stream of consciousness stuff. I mean, we know that he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he gives us a reminder that God did deliver righteous Lot. Uh, God not only punishes the wicked, but he keeps the righteous from judgment. Um, And so we see in verse 9 that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Notice that Peter says he knows how. Temptations, there's trials is the idea, difficulties. Uh, Peter didn't say that God would deliver the godly, but he can. And that's a a, a reason for comfort. Uh, If the will of God be so, the righteous will not suffer with the wicked. Um, always remember, God can do anything. If He doesn't, it isn't because He couldn't. And that's what faith really comes down to. If you think of, for example, the three Hebrew children, we believe God can deliver us from this fiery furnace, but even if He doesn't, He's still God. And um, you know, we've learned through uh, the years in, in different trials and tribulations that we've faced, and everybody has them, uh, but as we look back on our journey now of 30 years of marriage, 
Uh, there have been times when we've prayed for miracles. We've had really heart-wrenching experiences that we've been through. And sometimes God has answered those prayers and brought miracles, and sometimes we've had to walk through them a little bit longer. It doesn't change who God is. And we need to understand that God can do anything. That's what faith really is all about. It's not this name it and claim it, word of faith concept, where if you just really, really, really believe something, you'll get what you want. Faith that the Bible talks about, when, it, when James, for example, says pray in faith, is to, to recognize who God is and who we are and recognize that God is fully capable of delivering us. He knows how. He doesn't need a lesson from us. God knows how to deliver the godly out of trials. Um, and He can do anything. But if He doesn't, it doesn't mean that He couldn't. He's still God, and that's the kind of faith that, uh, that we need to pray for. So this is really in the midst of this scathing warning, we see this sort of hint of comfort for those who are battling false teachers in the present uh, age. So then we read, uh, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, this day of judgment that's coming. So Peter's warning of judgment was so harsh he wanted his godly readers to know that it didn't apply to them. And uh, his focus was on the unjust, literally the unsaved, the uh, unbelieving false teachers and the consequences of their false teaching. Uh, He comes across, again, extremely enraged here in his remarks because false teaching is serious. Notice that last phrase there, despise authority at the, in the beginning of verse uh, 10. It's the word kataphroneo, uh, to look down upon. It's used nine times in the New Testament. The New King James always translates it the same, despise, but it's this really condescending idea of, of despising. You know, why is it that some of the worst teachers are also the most arrogant and condescending? It's because... The goal of their teaching is not edification and training up of the saints. It's to build themselves up. They have ulterior motives. And since their teaching cannot stand on its own merits, they've got to present it with an arrogant, false sense of confidence that intimidates people into accepting it. They despise authority. And this is a good reminder to all of us to teach with humility. Always remind people to do their own research, to study the Word, to not just take your word for it. Uh, We want to drive people to the Word of God, and we want to teach the Word of God faithfully and truthfully, and hopefully, you know, um, godly teachers should never demand blind allegiance the way false teachers do. And uh, I've said many times, especially back when I was in academics for 12 years, that honestly, you know, I don't like it when students say things like, you've convinced me. I mean, I, I like it in the flesh. Who doesn't like that kind of, you know, pat on the back, right? But what I really like better and what I've learned to long for more is for people to say, you know, I've studied the Word and I've come to the same conclusion. It's quite a bit different than you've convinced me. Because if I convince them, then did someone else with a better argument or better looking or funnier or whatever is going to come along and sway them back and they're just going to be like a straw in the wind. We want our teaching to be rooted in the Word of God and drive people to the Word of God and show them that faithfully handling the Word of God, correctly handling the Word of God will lead them to 
the same conclusion. So Peter's long sentence comes to an end, and we move to the final section, and that is the conduct of these false teachers. Uh, he's reminding his readers of the conduct of these false teachers to motivate them to turn away from them. So he's going to give us a glimpse into their personal lives when he says, for example, they are presumptuous and self-willed. As Randy was reading that passage, he made just the perfect pregnant pause between those two words to just like let them sink in. Presumptuous is yet another hapax legomena, um, and it means bold and audacious. Self-willed means arrogant. Arrogant. Interestingly, the only other place that this word translated self-willed here is used uh, is in Paul's letter to Titus when he's giving the qualifications of elders, one of which is that we not be arrogant. Interesting. Once in a scathing rebuke, one of the harshest rebukes we find in Scripture of false teachers and false prophets who were self-willed, arrogant, and once in reminding the shepherds of the flock to not be arrogant. So these false teachers only cared about themselves and their own selfish goals. They were not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. The dignitaries is doxa, probably referring to angels. In fact, the different English translations are kind of uh, not quite sure how to translate. The NASB has angelic majesties there. Obviously, New King James has dignitaries. NIV has celestial beings. The ESV has glorious ones. Um, uh, but in any event, these false teachers were slanderers. Um, and because of these negative characteristics that Peter is outlining here, such as the fact that they look down on people, it's not surprising then that they would speak evil of others, even angels. And he goes on to say, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, they don't even bring a reviling accusations. False teachers were doing things that even angels would not do. Um, you know, you're, you're probably familiar with the phrase, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. First appears in 1709 by Alexander Pope. Uh, he was an English poet, and it's from his essay on criticism, quote unquote, in which he targeted the literary critics of his day. Uh, there were some places that uh, they have no business going, at least when it comes to criticism. And uh, so this phrase has kind of carried on through the centuries. It's a common line in songs and different things. Um, Bob Dylan's uh, song, Joker Man, includes this line. Bob Dylan, by the way, who hails from Duluth, right? Did you guys know that, or did someone pull my leg? He lived here, he lived here yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine told me that uh, when I was coming, he said, oh, you know, that's where Bob Dylan's from. He told me some Bob Dylan stories. He's a big Bob Dylan fan. But I'm always leery when someone tells me that because I've been really embarrassed before. I, we went years ago, made, we've traveled to all 50 states multiple times, but our first trip to Jackson Hole, and we had some friends, some Canadian friends, uh, who have traveled all over the United States, and they said, oh, when you, when you get there, ask your hotel clerk to for directions to the hole so you can go look at Jackson Hole. There's this hole that you, well, he was setting me up. But, and uh, so we've never been back to that hotel. Um, but uh, anyway, so I just want to make sure Bob Dylan really has some connection um, 
to, the, to Duluth. But uh, anyway, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. In the parallel passage in Jude, uh, we see, Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. You know, this is counterintuitive to our classist way of thinking. We, we would expect good angels to be perfectly within their rights to criticize fallen angels. But that's evidently not allowed in the presence of the Lord. Jude says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but instead said, The Lord rebuke you. If we go back to the text, but these, like natural brute beasts, instead of acting like good angels, these false teachers acted like animals, following their baser instincts. I don't remember if it was Dr. Staller or Sean, somebody referenced this already, but you know, animals live purely by uh, instinct. As one commentator put it, as animals are trapped through their eagerness to satisfy their appetite, so self-indulgence betrays these men uh, to their uh, ruin. And by the way, I, I did a study on this phrase, natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. And I looked it up in... Uh, in BDAG, and here's what I found under that heading. So, um, so I knew there was exegetical proof of my hatred for cats, and now uh, natural brute beasts made to be caught and uh, destroyed. Actually, as you've probably heard me say before, I really do love cats. They taste like chicken. But um, <laughs> back to our text. These, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own uh, corruption. Jude 10 expresses a similar thought. They will receive the wages uh, of unrighteousness, Peter goes on to say, as those who count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. In other words, these false teachers tried to pass themselves off as spiritual leaders possessing a special level of knowledge that gave them the right to look down on other people. But they didn't even try to hide their sinful behavior under the cover of darkness. They shamelessly practiced immorality in broad daylight. And um, that's why he goes on to say they are spots and blemishes. They're like a stain on an expensive shirt or a scratch on an otherwise beautiful piece of jewelry that mars the body of Christ, the church. They intermingle and fellowship, inferred here at the Lord's Supper, with believers, but they're unhealthy influences that bring down the body, having eyes full of adultery, and they, that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. This is the verse that my friend who wrote me a letter referenced here. Um, they lure people who are not firmly committed to Jesus Christ to join them the same way a fisherman lures his prey. Um, their deceit was aimed at seducing the undiscerning, those with itching ears. Uh, they have a heart that's trained in covetous practices and are accursed uh, children, trained in covetous practices. Uh, the KJV says exercised. It's uh, gymnazo where we get gymnasium. In other words, these false teachers work out covetousness and practicing. They sharpen their uh, evil uh, skills. Peter goes on, they have forsaken the way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of uh, Baor. So Peter here uses another Old Testament illustration, this time moving from Genesis to Numbers. 
And these false prophets were like animals. Uh, the false prophet Balaam, of course, uh, counseled Balak to invite the Israelites to participate with his people in a false pagan ritual, Numbers 31. And Balaam was the perfect example of a false teacher who led people astray for his own personal gain. He goes on, uh, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, dumb meaning not able to speak, uh, with a man's voice restrained the madness of uh, the prophet. Uh, it's a little surprising to me that God chose to use a dumb donkey rather than a cat, but anyway, um, I guess uh, it still works. And then they are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. Like the dry wells and falsely threatening clouds, these false teachers failed to deliver what they promised. You know, it's like when we look up in the sky these days and, and think we're seeing just oddly shaped clouds. But upon closer examination, we realize it's just the usual and ubiquitous climate engineering that the Luciferian powers that be love to douse us with every day. A little solar radiation management, a little stratospheric injection, a little atmospheric aerosol injection to fill our lungs, or cloud albedo enhancement, sprayed particulate trails full of aluminum and strontium and barium and more. This is one of many pictures that I've taken uh, through the years, and i got to tell you, this is not what partly cloudy is supposed to look like. Uh, the aerosol masking effect is everywhere, and by the way, in these great last days of deception, it's time we actually look up and acknowledge the elephant in the sky. Uh, I have an entire video on this uh, geoengineering. Uh, it's part seven in my Spirit of the Antichrist series. I think it'd be worth uh, checking that out. But Peter, what perfect, more perfect example uh, could he use? When you think about it, today's geoengineering techniques serve as an excellent modern illustration of false teaching. Artificial, nefarious, and very dangerous. And that's what these false teachers were. And it's for that reason that God's Word declares that these unbelieving false teachers will end up in the blackness of darkness forever. So 2 Peter 2, 1-17 paints a powerful portrait of the seriousness of false teaching. And so as I looked back over it, I thought, let me make some applications in my own life that uh, obviously the goal of Bible study is a changed life. It's not just to get smarter or to figure it out or get it all right. The goal is to uh, conform to the image of Christ and uh, become mature. So these are some applications that I think we can take from this passage. Number one, be on the lookout for false teachers. They are very sneaky. They are very sneaky. We see this from verse 1 when they secretly bring in their destructive ways. And as uh, someone uh, pointed out, actually I think it might have been in the workshop today with Matt uh, Costella, uh, a verse I come back to again and again, 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and imposters will wax worse and worse, right? So they're getting sneakier is the idea. Number two, never measure the accuracy of a ministry by the number of its followers. Remember he said many will follow their destructive ways. We're so prone to do this, right? But um, sometimes, you know, a majority just means all the fools are on the same side. And... Um, Never measure the accuracy of a ministry by the number of its followers. Number three, never underestimate the dangers that false teachers pose to the church. Again, going back to those three powerful examples that 
Peter uses of the angels who left their proper domain, the unrighteous in Noah's day, and the cities of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. These are serious uh, matters. Then I also thought, uh, be very leery of those teachers who indiscriminately criticize others. That's one of the characteristics of these false teachers, is that they speak uh, evil of uh, of dignitaries. Um, They're not afraid to do that. So be leery of those teachers who indiscriminately criticize others. Number five, be especially protective of weak believers in your church. Um, They're enticing unstable souls, verse 14 says. And that's where uh, it's very convicting that we as pastors need to to look out for for some of those um, and do it graciously. And then the last one, and I'm very sorry, Dr. Stallard, I tried to come up with a seventh. I know how sevens are so important to you as a dispensational uh, scholar, but I only have six, so we'll have to leave it at that. But do not be discouraged by the prevalence of false teachers because they will get what's coming for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So thanks for letting me uh, may share this. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to sign up for our newsletter at notbyworks.org. By the way, I want to offer just for free, if you'll email me, I've got a lengthy three-video series on each of the five points of Calvinism from which some of that stuff about limited atonement was harvested. I'm happy to send that to you. You can have the PowerPoints. You can also you know, have the videos for free. And then the last thing I want to mention is I really hope, you know, Mike Stallard mentioned you know, what a dark time we're living in, and he's right. <laughs> and he also mentioned how it's getting darker, and we are headed, I believe, for a dark winter, just like the Luciferians like Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and Tony Fauci have said uh, that we are. And so I honestly believe, just my own personal word of exhortation, that Pastors today are derelict in our duty if we do not address head-on the realities of the Luciferian agenda from our pulpits. And so this is a free video series that I did, eight parts. uh, Some of them are two hours long each, but addressing that very issue about what's going on right before our very eyes. These are unprecedented times we're living in, and we need to be out front. Otherwise, you know, to, to avoid it is basically to commit the same sin of complicity that Christian pastors did during the rise of Nazi empire in Germany. We need to address these things. So thank you guys uh, very much. Why don't I pray and then turn it over to somebody, I guess. Let's pray. Tom, thank you. Father, we do thank you for this uh, passage, Lord. It's, uh, it's, it's both hard and yet encouraging at the same time to read these words. And Lord, we confess sometimes that we've not been uh, good uh, watchmen standing guard. And uh, we also uh, confess uh, just the fact that sometimes we are not as careful with the word as we, as we should be. So, Father, raise up uh, godly pastors to take a stand uh, against some of the evil that we see rising, not only in the world, but even within uh, the Christian church or the so-called Christian church. And we uh, thank you for just what we have learned tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. JV, I just want to mention as far as the schedule goes, we're going to take a break of about 15 minutes, so we'll be back at 8 for our next session for those five remaining verses from the chapter. JV covered 17. (laughs) And uh, Pastor Dennis Roxer will be teaching uh, on a passage that is often uh, misunderstood to teach that you can lose your salvation. So 
I'm looking forward to that explanation and section. Uh, also, I just want to mention, if you're not coming to the next session this evening and you plan to join us in the morning, just a reminder that there is a breakfast available in the back, or actually it will be served in the upstairs hallway, but in the fellowship hall tomorrow morning. That's at 7.30 to 8.45, and feel free to join